This is Tax Chats. Hello, I'm Scott Dyring. And I am Jeff Hoops. And we're here to chat about taxes. Hello again, and welcome to another edition of Tax Chats. I'm Scott Dyring, professor of accounting at Duke University, and I am joined, as always, by the Tax Museum curator and professor of accounting at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Jeffrey L. Hoops. Hello, Jeffrey. Hello, Scotty. <laughs> no one ever calls me that. My basketball coach in high school used to call me that. One of them called me Scotty, and the other one called me Dyring. And the one who called me Dyring yelled, a lot louder than the one who called me Scotty, but the one who called me Scotty would get mad more often. So I don't know if I like that or not. But in any case, uh, it's good to see you. What do we got on tap today? So today we are talking to Whitney Afonso about sales taxes. Whitney, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Whitney Afonso. I'm an associate professor at the School of Government at UNC Chapel Hill. And I study, as Jeff said, sales taxes and state and local taxes in general, um, but a lot of time spent on sales taxes. So elaborate on a little bit. So you mentioned you studied state and local taxes and sales taxes. So we talk, you know, on this program, we talk a lot about income taxes and income tax is going to be levied by states, by cities, mostly by federal governments. Who levies sales taxes and what do we do with them? Yeah, so in the United States, it's primarily the majority of states levy a sales tax. The ones that don't, those of us in this little sphere call them the nomad states because that's a handy little acronym to remember them by. So that's New Hampshire, Oregon, Montana, Alaska, and Delaware. They are the exceptions of the states that don't levy sales taxes. Okay, hold on. Can we pause? Scott. What? Had you ever heard about Nomad? No, but I was just going to say, I have That's amazing. Have we're like three minutes into this and we already learned a very nomad valuable thing. thing. Okay, okay, wait, wait. Keep on now going. we're going to quiz Jeff to see how his retention is. Jeff, what are the Nomad states? New Hampshire, Oregon, Rhode Island? No, Nomad. Nomad. Oh, Nomad. I can't spell. No, I want to say Normad. Nomad. Uh, Montana? Maryland. Montana. 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 And Delaware. What's the A? Oh, no, Matt. Oh, Matt. Uh, Alaska. Yes. Very well done. Okay, so okay, we're here. It's three minutes in and Jeff and I have learned something new. So this is amazing. All right. This is great. All right. Keep going, Whitney. Sorry for the interruption. And uh, Sorry. To be clear, <laughs> we knew, so, uh, like when I teach this, I say some of the states don't levy sales taxes. And I always just have like a slide that there's the states. I know Oregon doesn't. Besides that, I can't remember. But now I know. Nomad. So you need to change your slide, Jeff. It needs to say the nomad states. I'm definitely going to do that, actually. I like that. Okay. All right, Whitney. It is handy. Um, And But what I was going to say is one of the things that's really interesting about those states is Alaska actually does allow its local governments to levy sales taxes. And it's the only state that does not levy them at the state level that allows the local governments to. Um, So the states levy them, but as I've already suggested, local governments levy them as well. And this is where we see a huge amount of diversity. And so it could be counties, municipalities, and or special districts. And Each state has its own mix of kind of jurisdictional eligibility about who's allowed to do that. Sometimes the cutoffs are based on population. Sometimes they're based on economic activity. Home rule status often comes into it. And so there's a huge amount of diversity about who is actually permitted to levy sales taxes at the local level. 
So when you say special districts, this is like school districts, fire districts, light, like what kind, what, what do you mean by special districts? Yeah. So sometimes they're transportation or school districts. Sometimes they're even economic development districts. So, um, it, it can vary. Special districts are definitely the least common, but we do see them happen um, in, in some states where there's really a lot of jurisdictional eligibility. And sometimes they're even, like I said, related to the kind of economic institutions in that community. So in some states, we see places that are really dependent on tourism and they have special districts just for that tourism. And so it's because we're more comfortable implementing sales taxes on non-residents and non-voters in a lot of these communities. It goes back to the old famous statement that we've talked about before, Jeff, don't tax me, don't tax thee, tax that fellow behind the tree. And that would be a very excellent thing to do to a tourist. So tax the tourists. Yeah. Tax the tourists. That's definitely a part of the sales tax at the local level conversation. And so this, so again, there's all sorts of different jurisdictions that are not the federal government that levy the estate taxes or these sales taxes. What do they use them for? So for the state government, it really just goes into the general fund typically. So anything that's lawful at the state level, they could be using those sales tax revenue. Once again, there's huge diversity at the local level. And so in most states, you have a mix of some sales taxes that can go to the general fund and be used for anything. And then very often there's also earmarked sales taxes where those dollars generated have to be used on really specific purposes. And that, of course, goes to our most popular services at the local level, right? So you want to guess what our most common earmarks are? Uh, Schools and fire and police. Schools, public safety sometimes, and that would often be a special district. But schools definitely. Schools. Uh, roads, road construction. Roads, transportation, yep. Yeah, that's kind of all I can think about. Maybe like uh, do some states or counties have like homeless shelters that they fund with sales taxes? I don't know. Okay, I have a guess. I'm going to look at my ceiling. Sorry, I just interrupted Scott. I have a, a political ad on my ceiling that's part of the tax museum. And it says, vote for the sales tax, a quarter of a penny for affordable housing, schools, family farms. And this was from like a couple of years ago, Chatham County wanted to raise her. So they were using it for literally family farms, schools, and affordable housing. And if you read it real fast, it's aff- affordable housing schools, but it's not really affordable housing schools. On that note, in North Carolina, we can actually, we do have some earmarks for our sales taxes and it's on education capital and there's no discretion there, but often people say what they're going to use it for, but they're not legally required to use it. And Chatham County would be, they are convincing their voters of all the wonderful things they're going to do with it, but they are not technically legally required to. Okay. So this... This raises two questions. The first question is, Jeff, why is the sign on the ceiling in the tax museum? Because uh, we ran out of wall real estate. I see. Okay. Actually, it was it was a part of the archives of the tax museum because it didn't have a place on the wall. And one day I was just staring at my ceiling, as one does, and I thought, huh, I could put the sign on the ceiling. So I put it on the ceiling. And it was. And it, it's, it, here's the important part. I had to put it somewhere because that was the sign made by the Democrats. It's quite large, actually. And there's a sign that's probably a quarter the size that the Republicans had up. It just says, vote no increase Chatham sales tax March 3rd, paid for Chatham County GOP. 
Um, and it was already up because it was so small. So I had to had to. So you had to balance two. it out, but because one took more real estate, had you had to, to put it on the it ceiling. Yeah. The Chatham County, the, the GOP one I harvested from the wild because no Republican would answer my emails about getting Did you a sign steal from. the sign? I just, har- after the election, oh, after. I just harvested it from the wild. Okay. And then the uh, Democrats, they responded to an email. I went to the little office. They had a giant stack of them unused. It was like two <laughs> days before the election, so they were not very efficient in handing the signs out. And they gave me a very nice, fresh sign. So. <laughs> okay, second question, Jeff. Did it pass? Because you live in Chatham County. <laughs> oh, it passed. So they, it was, they tried to pass it a couple times. It passed. And of course, <clears throat> as one, well, yeah, it passed. We'll, and, the second part well of the story, give us the second part. Uh, that's when I introduced a new element to the tax museum. I bought morning clothes. I have a black shirt and black <laughs> pants so that I can wear when we when we increase taxes or decrease tax. When I when we do thing, I do not like with taxes. Uh, you wear, wear your my morning. You wear attire. your black morning morning. That's in M O U R N morning attire. Yes, my morning okay. attire. Yeah. All right, uh, Whitney. Uh, Jeff is a very interesting tax museum curator, if you didn't already know that. Um, okay, so uh, let's talk more about sales taxes. So here's a question. When we levy sales taxes, who, I mean, who actually suffers the consequence of that? Who bears the burden of those sales taxes? Because I guess like the retailers are like paying the tax to the government, but do we? Remitting. They're remitting, the yeah. Tax. They're like sending the check. How, do, how does that work? Actually, can you can you just talk a little bit about, I mean, we... Tell us about how that actually works. We say sales tax. Yeah, what actually happens? How does it actually work? Yeah. yeah, what actually happens? Yeah, okay. So backing it up, and let me finish actually though the the previous part of what they're earmarked oh, for. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So schools, transportation, those are the big two. Economic development's probably right there is number three. And then in some states like Georgia, you can actually pass your own what they call a special purpose where they can make a laundry list of what they want to use it for. So my favorite example of this is I lived in Athens, Clark County, and they needed uh, money to build a jail, which is not a super popular one. So they really focused on the feral cat containment. Um, And so that splost really became about feral cats because it was on the list. Um, And that had a lot more public support. What does containment mean? And so that's where you might see affordable housing. Oh, go ahead. What does containment mean? <laughs> I think they were building little shelters for these feral cats. There are a lot of loose wild cats in in Athens. I, I was going to say, I, I, some people might have a different solution to the feral cat problem than other people. I, I don't think that would have flown really well in that community, but they they wanted a solution of one sort or another. What's um, What's fascinating to, to me cat. is that the feral cat thing was more salient. More popular yep. among the population than some like very prisons. than the prisons were right. It's very interesting. Imprisoning the cats is more popular <laughs> exactly. than prisoning the people. We're 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 much more comfortable with that. Um, and so you can see all kinds of things. I mean, in Texas, you can even have them for like big stadiums, right? You can pass a sales tax that's earmarked for stadiums. Um, and so there's there's quite a bit of diversity. But so then how do the sales taxes work? Um, That's a a great question. And so we often just use the shorthand of sales, but usually it's sales and use taxes, uh, which I heard in a previous podcast, y'all talked about how 
much evasion occurs with our our use taxes. And that's absolutely the case. By the way, just as a side note, I walked into an MBA class the other day. They asked me to come in and guest lecture to all of the first year MBA students for 30 minutes on taxes. And I accused every one of them as sales and use tax evasion. And they all said, we don't evade taxes. And there was like two people out of like 400 who said, oh, I know what that is. And everybody else had no idea what it was. And they were all evaders and they felt quite ashamed of themselves when it was all done. But yeah, so sales and use and we're all evaders. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Even the two that knew are undoubtedly evaders. Undoubtedly, yes. Um, I, I no. pay the use tax actually. You do not. I do. Do you report your full amount though? Because I report something on my, I mean, maybe I, I should estima- be I publicly. estimate. <laughs> He underestimates. <laughs> and, and I think it was either Michigan yeah. or Ohio, they actually have a way to estimate the use tax. And it's it's just like by your income and it's you just pay some tiny fraction of your income in use tax and that makes you fully compliant. I can't remember which state it was. but Wow. We're- I mean, that kind of model would be the only way you could make it work, actually. Yeah. We're in the presence really of, a, of one of the most honest people on the planet, Jeffrey L. Hoops. He pays the use tax. That's good. All right, Whitney, keep going. Well, as a tax museum curator, he has, <laughs> he has no choice. Moral obligation. Um, but so, yes, they are levied on purchases and they're collected by our businesses. And usually that's pretty straightforward because in the typical model of a brick and mortar store, you go in, they know what the tax base is and the rates are in that community, and they're able to collect the right amount. Um, And then they remit that to the state, typically once a month. Sometimes it's a little more frequent. Um, The state collects that at the end of the month and they take their portion. They figure out the local portion. Um, And in some states, that's a very complicated model. They take a couple percentage points for that collection and distribution off of the local portion. And then they redistribute it back to the local governments. Um, Use taxes make that much more complicated. Um, and this is where you saw all the issues with third party vendors or the, the purchasing that went on, not in brick and mortar stores. So, you know, back in the day that was through catalog sales or buying stuff off TV. And obviously now we think about it primarily through the internet. Um, And for those sorts of vendors, it became much more complicated because they had to understand the differences in tax bases and all those local rates and how much they should be charging, which is why we had actually Supreme Court cases, National Bella Hess and Quill, that kept reinforcing that it was too much of an onerous burden on these out-of-state vendors. And so they didn't have to remit these taxes. And then it was up to you as the individual to figure out what use taxes you owe to your state, and then to remit that through the income tax, essentially. Okay, so it's it's so nobody really does that, and so I think more recently, right? Haven't the internet companies then? There wasn't there a court case that basically forced like Amazon to start collecting tax because nobody was paying it. Yeah, and so that would be Wayfair versus South Dakota, RV South Dakota, and um, that changed everything. And so it's really easy to say that it was just this blanket statement, and what it actually was, and it's funny because in the Supreme Court ruling, they talked about sales taxes, and they didn't talk about use taxes, and it really only applied to use taxes. Um, So I have heard some say that maybe this isn't as strong as we would like it to be because they should have used the appropriate language. Um, But they looked at South Dakota's laws and said, okay, this 
burden is no longer onerous on these third-party vendors. And that was because South Dakota had simplified their tax code, and a lot of states had been involved in efforts to simplify the tax code to start trying to work to undo the Quill decision and ruling. They had um, ha they had a program where third-party vendors could, or not third-party vendors, but out-of-state vendors could go in and calculate based on the local taxes, what their burden was and all of that to make it easy for that rate. And then they had a threshold of kind of economic activity in the state that allowed for, you know, if you were an Etsy seller and you only sold like three t-shirts to the state of South Dakota, you didn't have to worry about collecting sales and use taxes. But if you had a certain threshold of sales, which I think theirs was $250,000 and so many sales, it wasn't just one purchase that you then had to start collecting and remitting sales taxes. And so a lot of states immediately passed their own economic nexus laws. And some of them had to kind of go back and change up, simplify things, implement some of those same thresholds. But almost immediately we saw that take place. Um, it wasn't the boon that a lot of people assumed it was going to be. The boon in terms of like revenue collections, you mean? Yeah, because Amazon at that point, at least at the state level, had already been collecting sales taxes across the country. They had already sort of Voluntarily, given in. Yeah. yeah. And, that, and that's an important thing, Scott. When you accuse everybody of evading, not everybody's evading. Because there's, I mean, most, you could very easily just not buy so again, we need to clarify what the use tax is actually. So you're buying something from a state that either has a lower tax rate than your current tax rate or that has no tax or from an online vendor that doesn't collect tax. And then you're responsible for emitting it to your own state. You might not do any of those things actually. It, yeah, it's, it's much easier now than it was 10 years ago. 10 years Ten, ago. 10 years ago, everybody, everybody bought stuff on the internet and the internet, but now <laughs> most big online vendors remit for you. Yeah, that is correct. Um, okay, so Go, go ahead, Whitney. Yeah, sorry. No, I was just going to say, absolutely. And I mean, even before Wayfair, that was really starting to become true. If you looked at who those big vendors were that people were making internet purchases from, Amazon was already doing it. Walmart has brick and mortar everywhere. So they had already been doing it. And then a lot of them were places like Best Buy and things like that, which once again had that brick and mortar. So they were already required to. And so it wasn't the windfall that we had I think, hoped for in many cases. And the change there happened actually with those third-party vendors. So Amazon and like Airbnb and places like that, that just kind of housed a lot of third-party vendors. So Amazon, they estimate it's about 50% aren't from Amazon. They're from other companies selling on Amazon. They didn't have to do that necessarily with economic nexus. And that required a different set of laws to come in and say, we're going to actually ask all these third-party vendors to also be collecting sales and use taxes. So it gets pretty complicated pretty quickly, it sounds like. Um, oh, okay, so here's, let's change, shift gears just a little bit. A couple weeks ago, Jeff and I were talking about a newspaper article that um, talked about two different types of marshmallows in the UK, big ones and small ones. And the big ones were not subjected to value-added taxes, which are kind of like sales taxes. And the small ones were, because the small ones were presumed to be eaten like candy, which is taxed. And the small ones were assumed to be roasted, which means they are baked, which means they are food, which is not subject to 
value-added tax. Are there strange things in sales taxes where there's sort of this thing is subjected to a sales tax, but this other thing is not subjected to a sales tax? Maybe not that strange, but are there things like that in the United States or is the UK just strange? No, we absolutely have strange things like that in the U.S. And in part because we pick and choose our tax base. And so when you're going to say we're going to tax junk food, well, who gets to decide what junk food is? And so a lot of the time it comes down to like flour content. So if that candy bar has some sort of like baked cookie element, so a Snickers versus a Twix bar, the Snickers will be considered junk food, but the Twix bar may not be considered Wait, is that, junk food. Is that in North Carolina that's cookie. the case or just in some, no, in some state? Not in North Carolina, but in some states. I actually think South Dakota is the, is the state that flour is sort of their determining factor. Okay, so this means the next time in North, I'm in South Dakota, I need to stop in, buy one of them with a receipt, one of them with another receipt, and that can be an excellent addition to the tax museum. The tax museum. Well, could you do that online, Jeff? Maybe you could buy one online somehow. Maybe you could figure out how to do that. Oh, except for you would need the address to be in South Dakota or North Dakota. Was it North Dakota yeah, or South Dakota? I think it's South Dakota that South has Dakota. the, the yeah. flower is their way of trying to make it efficient. But we have that with lots of things, um, arguably. So the fun ones are... Twix bars versus Snickers bars. But um, lots of people would argue in the states that really don't tax any services. So, you know, buying a Floby to cut your hair, I'm going to throw that one back for you. It's going to be subject to the sales tax, but going to the barber wouldn't be. Or, you know, buying a DVD is taxed, but going to the movies isn't taxed. And so there's a lot of places where we have really close substitutes that are treated differently under the tax code. <laughs> Jeff is now going to buy a Floby for the tax museum, <laughs> and he'll probably use it. <laughs> they're too expensive for the tax. I, mean, I have priced Flobies for personal use, but they're just well, well outside of my, my age. So I actually tried to price a Floby once to for, for, for the purposes of cutting my dog's hair because oh. it was just such a nightmare. But... um. In any case, so, so I, all right, I, I had a well dug actually not too long ago, and I noticed that the well components were taxed, as was the service. And the guy very clearly wrote down and said the service was there. Is, um, is that, and by the way, this was kind of an old school person who wrote a handwritten receipt for me. So I thought it was quite fascinating. Um, is that like our services sometimes not taxed, sometimes they're, uh, tax at different rates. Like, how does that work? Differences between goods and in, services in North Carolina specifically, and in and it was. I mean, what, the first question we ask it would be in North Carolina, in I think Scott lives in Orange County, in some there could be some crazy district, or I mean, this is, gets really complicated. Yeah, and so it does get really complicated, and I don't know to be to be honest in North Carolina if well digging services are taxed uh, under state law. So let me just start with that. I I don't know. Yep. But, um, but yeah, even looking at just Orange County, we have different local taxes. So, I mean, there are parts of Orange County, actually for us, we have really high ones. So if you're in Orange County, you have transportation, local sales tax that you don't have just kind of on the other side of the line. And so our tax rates are higher, um, than a lot of our neighbors, not all of our neighbors, but a lot of them, but services are becoming a really hot topic in this sphere because our economy has changed so much. And so, so much of our economy now is service-based. And so we have a lot of money that we're not collecting, which is making our sales tax rates have to go up. It's making them much more volatile and unstable. 
And it's really becoming kind of increasingly inequitable because of that omission of the services. And so in North Carolina, we have actually made some strides in taxing more services. I don't think we're ever going to tax medical services or legal services, maybe not even accounting services. So there do, you do you think that's just because the doctors and lawyers and accountants are so powerful or why wouldn't we tax those services? Or is it because, or is it a compliance component where like if they're not already in the sales tax system, it would just be a compliance burden for them to. So compliance has actually been one of the big arguments for not taxing sale, uh, services for a long time, but now things are getting automated and easier. And so we're taxing in North Carolina in the last six, seven years, probably we started adding kind of like repairs to cars and entertainment and other services that had not been taxed previously under the sales tax are now taxed under the sales tax. Um, those other services like medical and all that, I think it's really that we tend to omit from the sales tax base things that we consider as necessities. And so it's usually prescription drugs when it comes to tangible items, sometimes clothes, sometimes food for home consumption. Um, and so we kind of consider medical services something that we don't want to tax. Now, that's a huge portion of the potential tax base. And so that's an interesting choice, but it would be also tend to be even more regressive. And so it's for equity purposes, primarily that we don't tax it, not so much compliance. Okay. You just raised something I think is really interesting. You said the word regressive. So regress sales taxes are often thought of as regressive. Do you want to just explain like why and uh, you know, what, what's kind of going on with that word? And, and start out just reminding us what regressive means. Absolutely. Sorry. So when we think about equity, when it comes to sales taxes, we tend to think about it in two main ways or any really any taxes about either kind of a benefit principle of whoever is paying that tax benefits directly from it. And a lot of taxes satisfy and kind of we think about them that way, especially when they're earmarked like a gas tax. The other way and the way that we actually probably talk about much more often is sort of this ability to pay idea. And so if a tax, as your income goes up, your tax burden as a percentage of that income goes up, it would be considered progressive. And so our income tax, as you all talk about a lot, is a progressive tax. As your income goes up, so does the percentage of your income that goes to it. A regressive tax is the opposite. So as your income goes up, the percentage of your income that's paying that tax goes down. And so you have a higher burden percentage-wise, not necessarily dollar-wise, for low-income people. And for the sales tax, it's a regressive tax because they tend to spend more of their income on, ish, on tangible goods that are included in the tax base. So, for example, a higher percentage of their income is paying for food, clothes, televisions, things like that, than a higher-income person who is spending more dollars and has is paying more sales taxes, but not as a percentage of their income. Because they're just not spending, they're just not spending, they're a higher, the richer people are just saving more, which isn't subject to sales taxes, but also consuming more services, which are also not subject to sales taxes in some cases, at least. Yep. And sometimes they're consuming different goods like property and land and things like that, that are subject to a different set of taxes, but not sales taxes. Okay, so um, we're quickly running out of time here. So I just want to ask like one more question. So we often hear 
in the European context about value-added taxes. And we just talked about them a little bit with the marshmallows. I said marshmallow. Jeff, did you hear that? Last time we were like, does anybody call it a mallow? It's a mellow, but it's spelled mallow. In any case, marshmallows. Um, so value-added taxes and sales taxes are kind of the same, but they're not quite the same. Um, like, what's the difference? And maybe even give your opinion on why we don't have a value-added tax in the U.S. Or maybe you don't have an opinion, but if you do, maybe let us know what you think. So in the U.S., we have the retail sales tax, which is only on that final product that's going to its end consumer. At least that's the goal. We don't want those business-to-business transactions. So our goal is that it's only on the final consumer. And it's not usually 10%. Sometimes it can be a little more, a little less, but let's say it's 10%. And there it is. So the value-added tax, it's seen as self-enforcing because it's actually taxed at every level that there's a transaction. And so if you were making a shirt and that was your final good. When the farmer sells the cotton to the people that are going to make it into cloth, there's going to be a taxation on the cotton. And let's say that's worth $10. And so that 10%, they're going to take a dollar. And then once it's turned into cloth, I'm going to keep my math easy. Let's say it's now worth $20. And so they're not going to tax that full $20 because that's something that we want to avoid called cascading. So they're only going to tax that value add from when it became cotton to cloth. And so it would only be the $10 of additional value. And so that $1 again. And then when that cloth is turned into a shirt, it's now worth $30. I'm keeping my math really simple. Um, oh, it's a fa- and so fancy Scott shirt, $30 shirt. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Um, and so it's only taxing that last 10. And so overall, it has the same burden. It's still that 10% tax, but it's taxing at each level. And then one of the nice things is it's usually actually included in that final price. So when you go to buy the shirt, it's the $30 shirt and you see the sales in there. Now that's nice because people understand and they pull it into their preferences when they're shopping, but it's also not necessarily transparent. Um, The way they get around that is usually even on your VAT receipts, they'll tell you how, what percentage of that ended up being part of the VAT. And so it looks very much like a sales tax still, even on the receipt. Although again, that's going to be country by country, whether it's VAT inclusive or VAT exclusive and whether they put it on the receipt or not. And this, the self-enforcing, self-enforcing part of this is kind of cool because you start out and the farmer, you know, the, the, the mill pays ten dollars and then the person, you know, the I don't know, manufacturer of cotton or whatever make pays $20 and it kind of goes up. But I think what actually happens is the, the self-enforcing part is the um, second person in line pays $20 and then files for a refund of the $10. And in order to file for the refund, they need documentation that the person earlier in the tax in the supply chain actually paid the $10. And so they won't do business with that person unless they give them documentation that they actually complied with the tax. And as you go all the way up the entire supply chain, you get this self enforcing mechanism where everybody complies because everybody wants to be able to get the refunds that they're entitled to and they force each other to comply with the law. And it's, it's quite cool. Yeah. So do you think the U.S. will ever have a VAT? So will the U.S. ever have a VAT is a tricky question. I think most people give a sort of lazy answer of we've never had a federal VAT because we never had a federal sales tax. Um, that's not a particularly interesting answer to me. There's, there's been a push for a VAT for years and years, I mean, decades in the U.S. What's often called a fair tax is really a VAT, typically. 
Um, and I think one of the challenges we have in that first, the easy academic answer is what would it do to state and local sales taxes? It would throw that into chaos. And there's a lot of autonomy there. There's a lot of diversity there. It creates challenges, but it's important to those state and local governments. The political piece of this, I think, is really interesting at the federal level, though. We have conservatives that have been pushing for a fair tax, but typically it's instead of a federal income tax. And then we have Democrats that are pushing for a VAT, but typically it's to supplement the income tax. And I think that's where it makes it extremely unlikely we will actually see a VAT tax in the U.S. is because of this are we building the size of our tax base and our revenues or are we exchanging them? Um, and I, and I think that presents the primary challenge to the VAT in America. So, so Doug Shackelford, who was used to be the Dean of the, uh, business school over at Keenan Flagler at UNC where you guys work. Uh, well, I guess you don't work in the business school, but you work at UNC Whitney and Jeff works in the business school. He used to always say, we don't have a value added tax because the, Democrats think it's regressive and the Republicans think it would raise too much revenue. And once the Republicans realize that it's regressive and the Democrats realize that it would raise so much revenue, it'll probably pass. <laughs> do, you, do you know where but, that original quote came from? Nowhere. Larry, that's a Larry Summers quote. He's, oh, Larry uh, Summers. Griffin, okay. Griffin on Summers. There you go. Okay, so uh, Whitney, you may or may not know this, but Jeff, Jeff and I um, have recorded a few uh, tax tunes where we have, um, you know kind of morphed the world uh, of, of music into um, taxes. And um, you're, you, you said just a minute ago that you love thinking about taxes. So I'm guessing you see taxes in other aspects of your life. Where else do you see taxes? What's your favorite place where you have taxes? So I, I torture everyone around me with how much I observe taxes coming up. And one of my favorite examples, my, my poor children, is my daughter loves Fancy Nancy. And so we read a lot of Fancy Nancy books in our household. And my personal favorite is called Shoe La La. And it is the story of Fancy Nancy seeing a pair of red shoes in a storefront window and wanting them. And they are too expensive. And her mother says no. So she saves and works and does extra chores to earn them. She goes to the store to spend her $25 on the shoes and she cannot afford them because she did not take into consideration the sales taxes that would be levied on that purchase. And so poor Fancy Nancy is left distraught, all of her effort and extra chores for nothing. Now, not to spoil the ending for, for all of your listeners, but luckily she had been advising another woman in the story about her shoe purchases, and she is happy to take on the sales tax on Nancy's behalf, but... I, I love that because that's one of the big issues of sales taxes is transparency and that people don't take it into consideration with their purchases. And so I, I have actually read that to my students at one point, only one year, um, but shoe la la, excellent lesson about sales taxes. There, there may need to be a reading of Fancy Nancy Shoe La La on tax chats in the I've, future. I've read Shoe La La. Have you read Shoe La La, Scott? Oh, oh yeah. As a father of, father of four daughters, we know all about Fancy Nancy, but I don't know that I ever emphasized the tax angle on that. And it might need to be a lesson that my daughters learn soon and maybe my MBA students too. So it's great. 
<laughs> Your sons don't need to know about uh, shoes and uh, well, sales I don't tax know that discount. they would be as interested in the fancy Nancy and the shoe la la. We might need to go elsewhere to uh, teach them the tax lessons. But um, yeah, yeah. Um, well, Whitney, this has like been amazing. There's been so much interesting stuff here, and unfortunately, I think we're um, out of time. But thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, and I really appreciated having the opportunity to talk with you all about sales taxes. I'm always excited to talk about sales taxes. Yeah, that's great. All right. Well, uh, this has been another edition of Tax Chats. I'm Scott Dyring, your host, along with my co-host, Jeff Hoops. And our guest today has been Whitney Afonso, who is a professor at the University of North Carolina. It's great to be with you. We hope you'll join us again next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.